0: Welcome to Your Path to Real Wealth, where we explore how to cultivate real wealth, which is so much more than money. It's the sum quality of our values, relationships, health, sense of purpose, time, charitable giving, legacy, and more. Your Path to Real Wealth begins now.
1: Welcome to Your Path to Real Wealth uh, with Jeff Brimhall here, and I'm also joined by Benjamin Cummings. We're very excited today to have a guest on our show. Uh, I'm gonna introduce the guest by telling you a personal story about my life and then give you a brief uh, bio of his. So uh, when my daughter, my oldest daughter who's now 22, she was 12 years old. She was in a pageant for young girls to help them develop confidence and to provide some community service and so forth. And uh, she had to choose a service project to do. And she chose to raise some money for an orphanage. And she decided she's going to do a free babysitting night uh, and she was going to accept donations. So she had several families bring their kids over and drop them off, about 20 kids or so. And they all made donations. And she raised about $250 through her efforts. And then she found a company to match her the contributions that she had received. So she had about $500 that she was going to give to an orphanage. And as we talked about it as a family, we decided that for her to just send the check off in the mail would be a good experience. But to go and hand deliver the check would be an even better experience. And so we decided, we looked around and we found a, a group called the Child's Hope Foundation that was local in our area who sponsored trips for families to go help work on orphanages, interact with the, the children there, help help build the orphanages and provide service. And so we went down from one of our spring breaks to La Misión, Mexico and spent a week uh, working on an orphanage. And my daughter was able to hand deliver a check uh, to the director of the orphanage for $500. And he was so grateful for her contribution. And she also was able to work and plaster the walls and uh, build the orphanage. And in addition to interacting with the kids and the director of the orphanage, I think he was sincere in his compliments, but he said he'd never seen a 12 year old work so hard. Uh, And for me as a father, to hear him say that, and to see my young daughter had the experience of of seeing a different way of life and kids who weren't as fortunate. And to be able to contribute to that um, was very powerful. And I think it affected her life. And so uh, I've always felt grateful for that experience. And I knew Paul MacArthur through uh, our professional network. I worked with him as an estate planning attorney. He had done the estate plan for my wife's mother and her grandmother. And uh, I had a friendship with him, but it never came up that he was the founder of a child's hope foundation. And then through, I don't even remember how uh, I found out that he was one of the founders and was super impressed by that and have always uh, wanted to share his story. And so before we give him a chance to talk, I just want to give a brief bio of Paul. He's a, Paul's an attorney and he's a founding partner of a firm called MacArthur heater and Metler, which is located in Provo, Utah. He practices in the areas of tax planning, commercial transactions and associations, business contracts and formation, tax-exempt organizations, estate planning, and adoption. He's the co-founder of a Child's Hope Foundation, which is a public charity that seeks to find families for orphaned and abandoned children worldwide. His involvement stems from his own experience as an adoptive parent. He and his wife, Monica, have seven children, three of whom were adopted. Paul received a BA in English and business management from Brigham Young University and a Juris Doctorate from the J. Reuben Clark Law School at BYU and a Master's in Taxation from the Washington School of Law. He also sits on the boards of several nonprofit organizations where he seeks to make a difference in his community, his state, country and worldwide. He loves and enjoys his family and has had several opportunities to share his passion for a Child's Hope Foundation and the work that he's involved in with all of his children. I also know that he recently became a grandpa and uh, adores his grandson. He loves the garden and always has some kind of project going on. He's generous with his time, talents, and money, and rarely says no when someone needs him to do something. He enjoys doing stained glass, woodworking, and building all sorts of things. He loves Scotland and has a full Scottish Highland dress, which I've seen him wear at his daughter's wedding reception. And he's just an overall overall great guy. So with that, Paul, uh, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you. I'd like to I'd like to meet this person you just introduced. Sounds like a great guy.
1: <laughs> he is he is a great guy. Uh, super excited to have you on the show today. You've done so many amazing things, as your bio says, and we could talk for hours about estate planning and all sorts of different strategies that might help our clients in other ways. But we wanted to focus today in the limited time that we have on a child's hope foundation. Many of our listeners want to make a difference in the world. They want to help others. They've been blessed with talent, ability, and financial means to do something, and our hope is that hearing your story may inspire them to continue with causes that they're already supporting, or possibly even start something new. So maybe let's start by having you provide an overview of what a Child's Hope Foundation does.
2: Okay, thank you. Um, so, a Child's Hope Foundation uh, its 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 purposes have changed throughout the years. It was um, we began the organization and got tax exemption back in 2001. So it's been a lot of years. Initially, we had a few projects in Haiti. We were building orphanages from scratch, from the ground up, and we were trying to get the kids in the orphanage uh, placed for adoption. That, that is continuing to this day. The last number I heard was close to 7,000 kids have been adopted out of that orphanage since 2005 when it was finished. Um, that includes uh, during the the earthquake some time ago. Um, uh, at the time, we had kept good records, and so all of those children were able to be adopted quickly. We, we then moved into Mexico and started to do a lot there. And again, the the organization morphed a little bit because Mexico doesn't really allow for adoptions. And so it became more about what do we do with children who will probably still be in the system in the orphanage system specifically for the long-term until they age out at 18. How do we deal with that situation? And that's a different um, question than how do we, you know, get children in and get them placed for adoption. So we're now in um, a number of countries. We're in uh, Palestine, we're in uh, Bulgaria, we're in Ghana, uh, we're in Kenya, we're in Uganda, Colombia, Peru, Uh, Bolivia, still Mexico, still Haiti, and we're looking at a number of of new countries to move into. Uh, It's expanded beyond what I ever thought it would be. And so currently what we do is we primarily certify orphanages. So let's say for example, we find a new orphanage in Mexico, we go and evaluate their leadership and we determine that this is good leadership. They just lack resources and they lack training and education. Uh, There is no degree anywhere in the world called orphanage studies, for example. (laughs) So you've got a little bit of psychology, you've got a little bit of of, uh, teaching, you've got a lot of child care, you've got uh, uh, business issues to deal with, property issues to deal with. It's just a wide variety of issues that these directors have to deal with, and they're often doing it on little to no funding, uh, often not even enough to pay for food. So we come in and and evaluate the leadership. And if we determine that the leadership is honest and wants to improve the situation, then we develop called an something called an orphanage improvement roadmap, which means we evaluate how they're doing based on the fourteen points that are based on the international rights of a child uh, through the UN. So it would be things like um, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, vocational, things of that nature. So we do an analysis, a very extensive analysis of the orphanage as a whole. We look at transparency of their accounting practices. We look at the facilities themselves. We look at how the children are being housed, who's taking care of the children. It's very extensive. From that analysis, we come back and give them the orphanage improvement roadmap that that, that basically indicates this is how you can get best practices in all of those 14 areas. If the orphanage director says we're in, we just don't have resources, then we then start to bring the resources to bear. For example, there's an orphanage in Mexico that when we got there, most of the children were being housed in large units all together, boys on one side, girls on another. Um, Research has shown that that is not a way to raise a child in a warehouse type situation with, with constantly changing caregiving. That's, it, it's, it's extremely damaging to their, their cognitive development, their emotional and social development, et cetera. So we went in, we, we analyzed that, and realized that's one change that needed to be made. They signed off on it. And we be, immediately be, began to uh, build small units where you could have, for example, the boys ages six to nine or 10 would live in this little unit and they would have a husband wife that would live in the unit. There was a separation uh, for that family, but they would act as mom and dad for those those boys in that unit. And, And so we created these little units. That's a much better situation for children in their cognitive and social development. So that's just an example, but we go through and develop that orphanage roadmap uh, once there's a commitment to it, then we go and 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 implement that plan. In addition, we do specific um, plans for each child, treatment plans for each child. Um, for example, there was a, a situation in Haiti where there were two boys, brothers, four and two. Their their parents were murdered one night by men who broke in to steal what they had, which wasn't much, and they they were they were killed with machetes. Well, nobody knew, and these children were so young. They they were there for three days in the hot Haitian sun with the bodies of their parents before any of the neighbors that lived quite some distance away came to check, hadn't seen them for a while, came to check on them. Well, those children were taken within hours, were dropped off at our orphanage with no indication of what had happened to them. So if you can imagine something that traumatic and, and, and a few hours later, you're dropped off in a place with new faces, new everything. And you're told, hey, here are your chores. You need to do your chores. Here's what's expected of you. You need to act like a normal child. But they've got this major trauma they've got to deal with. So we, we work to, to go out to the villages where all the kids come from in Mexico and everywhere else and find out what their history is. If we don't know it, we got to find it out. Once we have that history... Then we can develop a specific treatment plan. We have therapists, et cetera, on staff, and they provide that therapy and that training. It may be vocational training. If they don't have enough education, uh, they need to be able to, when they age out at 18, they've got to have somewhere to go that isn't the lowest paying, worst jobs available. So our, our slogan is to take children from surviving to thriving. And that's probably the best way to describe what we do is we, we want them to thrive we don't want them to just survive any longer they need to thrive
3: oh this is amazing this is really impressive work this is benjamin cummings by the way thank you for telling this story i'm i'm quite i'm taken aback i guess i'm taken aback at at all the the good that you can do for these individuals these children and these these really tragic situations do you have some stories of some of the orphans and the ways that you've been able to help them out of their situation?
2: Yes, absolutely. we've got we've got thousands of stories. Um, maybe one that illustrates uh, a bit better than the others. Um so there was a uh, in one of the orphanages in Mexico, there's a special needs section for just special needs uh, orphaned or abandoned children. And it, 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 quite frankly it's 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 a sad place to go because um, they don't have the wherewithal to to handle some of the issues of these kids in any way other than to keep them really within a small area with fence around it because they can be a danger to themselves and others some of them can we had a a young lady age 15 that was uh, brought to that specific section special needs section of the orphanage Uh, fortunately and this is years ago we were just starting to develop some of the new techniques and fortunately one of our longer term volunteers we have we have uh, you know 18 to 24 year olds that'll go spend the summer uh, at the orphanage and get to know the kids and really provide a lot of love. And then they'll do a certain training. So this is one of the longer term volunteers that got to know this young girl and and was just was just not sure that she was special needs. So he spent some time with her. Well, it turns out what happened is she had a speech impediment and so early on, because of the speech impediment, everyone thought that she was mentally challenged. And so they told her that and they were convinced of it. She believed it because she didn't know any better. She's in her own head thinking this is what mentally challenged must feel like. So she, she absolutely believed that she was and she acted that way. Once that was discovered, it just took some speech therapy. And within, I think it was nine months, she was reading and writing her her speech impediment was significantly mitigated. She was in the regular school system. She moved out into the, the uh, main body of the orphanage. Um, I mean, it completely changed her life because we had one long-term volunteer that cared enough to get to know her and ask some questions. And because of that, then the, then the therapy and the training was given and it's completely changed the trajectory of her life. Now, again, she's one of of hundreds of millions of orphaned and, and abandoned children in the world. And yet she's it, it's her life. And so that's those are the kinds of stories that warm my heart because it really is, you know, if you look too closely at the numbers, numbers can help to diagnose, but if you look too carefully at them, you lose the, the faces and uh, of these children. And that's what really matters. So that's one example of, of how the volunteers who went down are the ones that instigated this change that changed the trajectory of this young girl's life.
3: Thank you. What a great example of yeah the, the power that a volunteer can have. You know, I, I have some friends that have volunteered for a child's hope foundation and when they come back, they're, they're different. They, the volunteers themselves have changed that they are, are mm-hmm. better people because of their experience. You know, do, do you have any experiences of the volunteers where, where they've been able to share of their experience and in the growth that they've had by participating? You know, uh,
2: yes, Uh, many stories like your friends. It's interesting, Uh, we live in the the digital age where, you know, in the the history of the world, people have not been this lonely and yet we're supposed to be connected, right? There is something about engaging face-to-face in a simple environment with these kids that caused the volunteers to understand that they're human beings, that they, are, um, that they have hopes and dreams, that they're intelligent, that they're emotionally gifted, uh, that they do have trials and, and, and trauma that they're dealing with. But by and large, they're, they're good kids. My, my kids, it was funny, my, my daughter, who's uh, one of my adopted kids, she's almost 12, and she was at school the other day. And one of the kids made a comment that she was spoiled. And, and, and she was confused by that and, and asked why they thought that. And they said, well, because your dad's an attorney and, and she didn't really have an answer at that time, but as we were talking to her that night, as she told us about this, we, we told her, you know, just go ask them when's the last time they went to Disneyland. Cause we get to go to Mexico every year <laughs> and that's our vacation. And, um, my kids, we actually did several years ago. My wife and I, we surprised the kids on the way back from Mexico. We usually drive down and back. And we just surprised them with uh, a Disney trip on the back end of the orphanage trip. And they had a great time. And uh, I had to fly home, so I missed it all. But when they got home, I was asking uh, two of them, my now 17 year old and my uh, now 14 year old, I asked them, you know, how, how was Disneyland? And they said, oh, it was great. So, what were your favorite rides? And, and they, they, they mentioned that. And I said, well, you know, we're thinking we may try to do this every so often. And the now 17 year old kind of gave me a funny look. I said, what's, what's that for? And he said, if we're going to spend time, can't we just spend more time at the orphanage instead of Disneyland? And I just thought, you know, that's, and my kids are, my kids are super special to me, but they're, they're not what you'd consider, you know, child prodigies or or sponsoring. They're good kids. They're, they're capable kids, but it's because they, they've, come to know these kids they watch the news differently than other kids when they see something happening in Ukraine or whatever to them it, it, it feels more personal like hey I've I've met kids like that some of those kids like that are my friends and so I want to do something I don't, I don't want to just watch this I might maybe want to think about doing something about it and and that's how my kids have thought about this uh, and, and really not because of anything my wife and I did but but because they just experienced it and got to know. Them. So I I think that same process happens with volunteers as a whole. They go down and they recognize the good that they can do. They recognize that these kids, though they do need their compassion, they 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 also realize how much these kids have to give to them of their sweetness and goodness, their, their perseverance, et cetera. And it's this back and forth exchange of goodness, uh, for lack of a better word that they, that goes on between the volunteers and the kids at the orphanage. That is something I've noticed more and more through the years and is pretty universal. I hope that answered your question.
1: That was great. I love that. Thank you. Thank you, Paul, for sharing about the foundation. That's amazing. All the success you've had over the last 20 years. It's so impressive. And looking back, It may be easy to see that it was well worth the effort but i'm i'm guessing it wasn't always this way and you probably started out small will you tell us the story of how the foundation started and if in the beginning you envisioned it becoming what it is today i think you mentioned that you never dreamed it would be this big
2: yeah you bet so there was a gentleman by the name of paul cook and paul had been a vice president at a large tech company and had done financially very well his last and youngest daughter was adopted from china and in the process of adopting her, he got to know the orphanage, I'm sorry, not the orphanage director, the, the adoption agency director fairly well. This adoption agency director uh, later on approached Paul and asked if he would go with him to Haiti. They were evaluating the merits of, of opening an adoption program in Haiti, and he needed Paul's business acumen. So Paul agreed, went to Haiti. And and while there met a gentleman um, who had, because by or by virtue of being kind-hearted, desperate parents had what they would do is they would bundle their their infants up in, in, in as many blankets as they could. And then they would throw the bundle of blankets over an eight-foot wall into the courtyard of this gentleman's home. And at the time that Paul met him, he had about 40 of these infants who had been put in his care and 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 he was just asking for help he said look i'm willing to care and love care for and love these children but we have an 800 square foot home i've got my wife and i and my three kids and literally at night we are head to toe with bodies and it's really becoming problematic so if someone can build a facility for me i will continue to do the work So Paul came back from that experience and had committed to that gentleman that he would do what he could. Meanwhile, I had finished my master's degree in tax. And the last course I took was setting up tax-exempt organizations. I was doing a lot of adoption. My oldest two kids and my only two kids at the time were adopted. And adoption was a huge part of my life. And so I thought, I want to set up a charity that does something with adoption but I wasn't sure what that would be. So I set up a child's hope foundation. I asked some of my adoption clients to be on the board. And we, we had met maybe two times just to talk about ideas. What, what, what do we want to do with this organization? At the, at the same time, one of those board members was known to Paul Cook. They were fairly close and they were visiting. And Paul was recounting to this person the experience in Haiti. And this person then said, you know what? Sounds like you're not sure where to go with this. I'm, I've am i been meeting with somebody who has a charity set up, but we don't really know what we're going to do with it yet. Would you be interested in meeting with them? And Paul said, yes. And of course, that was me. So Paul and I went out to lunch. I'd never met Paul. And he tells me this story. And I, I just said, you know what? As long as adoption can be a part of it, I'm all in. And he said, "That's great. I'm, you know, my daughter's adopted, youngest daughter. Let's let's do it." So that's that's really how it was started. At the time, we had no idea where it would go. We we knew we wanted to do something beyond just this one orphanage in Haiti, but we didn't know what uh, at that point. Paul um, quickly brought on some of his uh, colleagues and neighbors that had specific skill sets that we needed, like construction. And a Child's Hope Foundation as it exists today was, was born. So again, to your second question, I don't know that I ever thought – I didn't really have a plan. Paul may have, but I didn't. To me, it was like, look, I, I, I want to do this good, and then I want to do the next thing good, and then the next thing good, and the next thing good. And I want to try to do good, and then where it goes – we'll see. But I really didn't have a grand plan in my head of what a Child's Hope Foundation would be like. Paul passed away a couple of years ago and and left that legacy, um, paid for almost the entire first orphanage out of his own pocket. So I really give credit to Paul and his family for what a Child's Hope Foundation is today. And I feel like I've just been extremely blessed to be along for the ride.
1: What a great story of how having a desire to do good, what it can turn into if you're just willing to get started. That's amazing. Yep. Paul, what advice
3: would you have for any of our listeners who want to use their, their time, their talents, their resources to to make a difference?
2: My advice, two simple words, do something. Uh, Maybe three, do something now. (laughs) Um, if it's baking cookies for a neighbor, do it. Um, you know, I, I, I routinely will go and and uh, present at either the law school or at BYU undergraduate to pre-law students, and that's what I tell them. I mean, these are students; they they, they really they're often living on loans. But I'll tell them you can afford stuff for cookies, you can afford things like that. Uh, one thing we do with our kids, for example, is we buy the, go to Costco. And we buy those boxes of of a variety pack of candy bars. And then we just put little simple messages in, in where the plastic kind of folds down. And we tell our kids, go just hand these out at school. It's if you notice someone, even if you don't know them, if you notice that they just look a little down or whatever, just go give them a candy bar. You don't have to say anything to say, hey, you thought you'd like this or whatever and walk away. And it's, so it's things like that where it's just like, do, do what you can. Now, as, as you accumulate more and more wealth, then I think it, it, the situation changes, the paradigm changes. Then you're starting to deal with it. If it's significant wealth, now you've got to start to deal with what impact that wealth is going to have on your children, grandchildren, et cetera. There is a condition that it was a Harvard professor coined the phrase affluenza. And it is just about as predictable as COVID. (laughs) And it's it's children and grandchildren, sometimes great-grandchildren of significant wealth and what they go through and what that wealth does to them, good and bad. Uh, But the affluenza part is obviously not the good part. Um, And so at that point, you've got to really start to plan. You've got to say, okay, uh, I, I know what kind of work it takes to build a company. I've now got to figure out what kind of work it's going to take to build my family, to build protections from affluenza. And so you be specific about it. You sit down with your kids, you talk, you go and do, you work in soup kitchens or orphanages or whatever you want to do but you get them ready um, to to see wealth as a stewardship as much as any kind of an entitlement. As I look out at my clients that have significant wealth, if they want to enjoy some of that wealth, that's great. That's what it's for. Take some family vacations, just really enjoy it. In, In many cases, they have more than they can ever use on family vacations, et cetera. And that's where we start to talk about what can we do to now turn that portion of your estate into a stewardship and get your kids to see it as a stewardship. What am I going to do? And there's several charitable vehicles that can be used where you actually earmark or set aside that portion of your estate for your kids to give away. Kind of like the candy bars, right? You don't get to eat the candy bar. You get to give it away. But we're going to give you candy bars as well as part of your inheritance. So you'll have that. But this part is for you to give away to somebody else. So that's always my advice is be intentional and start doing it now.
3: I love that. I love that. And and I like what I hear too is it doesn't need to be create a foundation, doesn't need to be start a start a charity. It can be just do something now that you can do within your sphere of influence to get started. I love that.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: What if somebody does want to start a foundation or a charity or or some, they, they want to pursue something more formal like that? What advice would you have as they get started?
2: My advice, I'm going to get a little technical here, if that's okay. My advice would be to look at the stage in life that you're at. If you've got small children, for example, or you're uh, otherwise involved in maybe uh, getting higher education or something that really occupies your time, setting up your own foundation may not be the best idea because a foundation takes work. Um, You can't just sit on it. There are IRS requirements that you do things with that. Um, and so, what I usually will tell people is, if you're in that stage of life, let's look at a, what's called a donor advised fund, which is just a charitable fund. You can put money into it, and at this point, there's no there's no work that needs to be done on it. it can sit there and just build tax free. You just have to know that that whatever comes out of that donor advised fund has to be for charitable purposes. Um, and so, that but that's the cool thing is once you've established a donor advised fund, you put money in, it's grown. Then it's, then it's time to sit down with your children or whoever and say, okay, this money is specifically under the law, uh, well, can only be used for charitable purposes. So we need to talk about what those, those charitable purposes would be. Is it going to be Again, soup kitchens. Is it going to be homeless? Is it going to be abused women and children? Is it going to be L B G T Q issues? Is it going to be what is it that that the, the kids are passionate about? that They can step in and say, okay, now we can help. You know, th- these funds are earmarked and f- f- for us to use, and, and now we can move forward and do that. If you're in a stage of life past that where you're, you're thinking, I want to get involved now. Then you're looking at uh, uh, setting up a, a family foundation of some sort. And there are certain types of foundations that are grant making is what we call them foundations where you're just writing checks to other charities and that takes less work. So you get together maybe once or twice a year and you evaluate, You, you maybe you give projects to the kids to say, okay, go research these uh, th- these charities that have made a request for distribution and come back and make a presentation at our meeting and tell us which ones you think are the most worthwhile, doing the most work with the fewest resources, for example, and then they come and present. If you want to do more than grant grant making, you want to actually do the work, then there's another type of family foundation that you would use that would allow you to do that. So it really, the 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 structure of the foundations and donor advised funds works really well for kind of a developing charitable plan as a family. Starting from we don't have much time all the way to we are all in, we are working on the charitable cause ourselves and are enjoying that, that
3: phase of life. That's wonderful. Thank you. That's great guidance.
1: Super helpful, Paul. Uh, If regarding a child's hope foundation, if people want to support that organization, maybe they have a donor advised fund set up and they're looking for charities to support. I know you're one of the ones that does a lot of good with a, a little bit of resources in a sense of you're very efficient with the money that's given to you. How can people um, support a Child's Hope Foundation?
2: Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, I, I would send them to a child'shopefoundation.org or you can put it achforg um, and it'll get you to our website. Uh, we have we're fortunate. We we can um, we can make the promise to any donors that whatever they put into the uh, to the foundation to Child's Hope Foundation. 100% of it will go to the program cost, to the kids directly, to feeding them, to giving them therapy, vocational training, building infrastructure. 100% of the donation will go toward that. We've uh, got other donors who we, we have some limited administrative costs and some employees, but these other donors have agreed to pay all those costs. So, whatever, uh, if a dollar goes in, a dollar goes to program costs. Um, which I know that most charities can't do. We're pretty fortunate to be in that situation. Uh, but that's what I would do is send them to achf.org. And, and I'm happy to talk with any of them as well. Um, we've got other people that can talk to them as well uh, and give them some um, specific input about what their dollars can go for.
1: And if they want to go on one of these uh, trips to actually visit the orphanage and have that experience, how do they do that?
2: So go to the website, in fact, you know what, while we're talking, I'm going to pull it up so I can tell you exactly how to get there. It, there's, a, there's a volunteer tab, and you go into the volunteer tab. It's under get involved, volunteer, and then service trips. And then under the service trips tab, it asks, there are private trips uh, that are called reserve trips and public trips. Reserve trips would be like uh, we've got extended families that want to go down and do a family reunion there and do work etc so those are our reserved trips and then public trips are for anyone who wants to sign up so you can go in there you can see what's available what the dates are which orphanages um, in mexico we now have close to 15 orphanages that we work with and so there's we're, we're doing trips virtually all the time at this point sometimes multiple trips in the same uh, time frame uh, so that's where they would go and sign up and anybody can sign up We've had people that just found our website internationally, even in Canada and in Europe and signed up for trips and came on the trips. And that's wonderful. So anybody can sign up.
1: I know we still have friends to this day from the trip. Uh, They live close to us. We didn't know them before, but we met down on the trip. They happen to go to the same school my kids do. And it it was a, a bonding experience. So and I know Benjamin's excited to maybe take his family on a trip. So we're looking forward to that.
2: Oh, great. We, we, ben, Ben, Benjamin, we'll have you and your family anytime you want.
1: Yes. I'm looking forward to it. I think it a great <laughs> thing.
3: Great thing to get involved with.
1: Have such an impact. And I love the story of, of the candy bars with your kids and handing them out. I think uh, you've inspired me to do something like that for my kids to just think of others and, uh, and not get stuck on thinking about themselves, but how have you prioritized and balanced your life? I know that's a challenge for all of us, but you're being as a business owner, Uh, founder of a foundation, husband, father of seven kids, serving in your church, everything else you've done, how do you prioritize and balance everything?
2: You know, uh, one thing I've realized is everybody has um, uh, chaos (laughs) and more that they can do in their lives. And so this is just how I handle it. Uh, So I'm not suggesting that this is the way to handle it by any means, because uh, again, everyone has their own particular issues to deal with. But for me, um, I, I try to carve out, my day and give it to, primarily to, to 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 different groups. For example, um, I usually get to work pretty early, usually about five in the morning, and I go till about four in the afternoon. And that's my work time. And so my priority is is my work and my clients during those hours. If I had a family emergency come up, then I I can deal with that. But I'm 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 I know that I'm consciously taking it from a work time to a family time. And the same thing applies once I get home from work, that's family time. If I had a client that had a need in the evening, I go to my wife and ask her, are you okay? This is what they need. Are you okay if I give that much time, because it's family time, to that client? And if she says, yeah, we're just sitting around anyway, then that's fine. Then I'll do that. But, it's, but, I, but she's the one that has to pay, pay the price for me uh, being involved uh, during family time with work so i do that uh, with the child's hope foundation um it's maybe a little easier because they're kind of defined events like our board meetings uh, they're usually at the end of the work day so that's not a problem um, and they, they they happen every other month um, then the trips those are defined trips for example i'm i'm off to bethlehem in uh, two and a half weeks i know the dates um i can i can do that honestly while i'm there um, because Bethlehem is 11 hours ahead, we get back from the work, work day about seven o'clock or so to our hotels rooms. Um, and I go to work and I work till usually one or two in the morning just to keep things going at work because I know it's not necessarily fair that my clients have to always suffer when I'm gone. So I, I do that. And then we get up in the morning and do that. And, and so that's, again, it's, it's a defined, like I can do this. And, and then when I'm done with that, I'm back to child soap foundation stuff. And that's my priority. So I just, I just try to not label, but I try to assign parts of my day to parts of my life and say that has priority. I can make exceptions, but it's going to be a specific deliberate decision to make an exception there instead of just always the family getting crowded out, for example.
3: Hey, Paul, thank you for all your time. Like, this has been great advice, great uh, insight as well. As we wrap up, we want to ask, what is real wealth to you? Well, that's a
2: great question. Uh, real wealth to me is the ability to take care of my family and the ability to take care of others within my sphere of influence. It's, it's being able to develop the person I want to be Um, because it gives me access to experiences that I may not otherwise have. One of our goals with the Child Soul Foundation is to reduce the cost of the per-person cost of the volunteers as much as we possibly can, because we want to make it accessible to just about everybody. But even that being said, um, that's not always the case. There are still people that are priced out, if you will, of that experience even though it's it's there's no you know it just covers cost it's still too much for them and so wealth real wealth says the whole uh, world of options is available to me i'm not limited by the wealth the cost what am i going to do now who am i going to be and to me real wealth is, is deciding who you're going to be and then using the wealth for you and your family to accomplish that and become the person that you want to be become. So it, it involves being intentional. Um, it, it involves saying no to things uh, that even seemed fun at the time. Um, it involves an investment in time and resources to get to some bigger goal, some grander design, something that involves your family and your kids and takes them along that that uh, journey with you.
3: I love that, Paul. Thank you. Thank you for your time today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Please follow this podcast so you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoyed this show, be sure to share it with others. Thank you for listening to Your Path to Real Wealth from Blue Barn Wealth. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends and click the subscribe button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and any guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Blue Barn Wealth. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for personalized investment advice. Because everyone's situation is unique, always seek the advice of a qualified financial professional with any questions you may have.